Day weekend. So the first time it happened to me, I was really shocked. Like it was so real when it happened. I couldn't believe that it was just a dream. And then as I, as I did some research and I started reading, I realized that what I had experienced was not an uncommon occurrence for people who are dealing with substance abuse. You see, as a teenager, I had taken up using tobacco, and then as I got into my early 20s, I was quitting, and so I had quit cold turkey. And several months later, in the middle of the night, I woke up with the profound experience that I had used tobacco again. Like I woke up, my body felt it. I felt the, the release that you get from nicotine, and, and, and in my mind, it was like, oh my gosh, John, you, you blew it. So you might as well just go ahead and start again. And this is called, otherwise, it's also known as the alcoholic stream because it happens oftentimes to people struggling with alcohol addiction, is that they'll wake up in the middle of the night literally drunk or buzzed. Their body will, will create a buzz and it will convince them that they've blown it so that they should just go ahead and drink more physiologically tricked into sinning, tricked into abusing addictive substance. This morning we're going to talk about the gift that we have in Jesus, but we're going to talk about it also in the specific way that John writes about how that sets us free from the enticement of sin and the effects of sin, even when that sin seeks to trick us, how we can be on guard against that. So pray with me as we look at the scripture today. Jesus, thank you for this family from all over the world today. We are profoundly grateful for your presence, profoundly grateful for your gift that we celebrate and we seek to know at a deeper level today. So Holy Spirit, come and enlighten us. Holy Spirit, fill us with your presence. Holy Spirit, open us to hear the good news fresh and new today so that we might be effective witnesses of your kingdom for the healing of the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this morning we're looking at 1 John 5, the last chapter in 1 John, this homily, this compilation sermon that John gave to the, the early church. And in it we see that knowing that we have eternal life is the ultimate gift of the Father for us in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We understand through this gift that we are held by Jesus, heard by Jesus, and headed towards God. Well, let's look at the text. 1 John chapter 5. Every person who believes that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, is God begotten. If we love the one who conceives the child, we'll surely love the child who was conceived. The reality, the reality test is on whether or not we love God's children is this. Do we love God? Do we keep his commandments? The proof that we love God comes when we keep his commandments, and they are not at all troublesome. Every God-begotten person conquers the world's ways, the conquering power that brings the world 
to its knees. Now let's pause here because this is interesting. So there's a certain shoe brand out there that many of you may know called Nike. Anybody familiar with Nike with that, right? So who knows what Nike means? Victory, exactly. This is the only time in the New Testament where that word, that root word, Nike, is used. But what is translated, what Peterson here in the message translates as conquering power is an offshoot of the word Nike. And as often happens in the New Testament, when a word is only used once in a specific location, it presents, it presents a unique difficulty for translators. Because if a, word, if a word is used multiple times, you can kind of discern from context, and you can see how it was used other places, and then you can come to see, okay, well, this is probably how it's used here. But since this word is only used once here in this way, translators have debated over exactly what it means. Some say it, it means a victory that is in the future. Some say it's, it's, no, it's kind of a power that you have now. The majority of them, though, point to it is a past tense. That it is something that he's pointing to. He's saying, the faith that you had, that day that you were born again, that day that you made your confession in Jesus, you won. You have the victory. It's yours. It's not something that is, that is in doubt. It's not something that you're going to have to work for in order to obtain. No, in fact, it is something that you already have, and that's what gives you motivation as you work it out from that. This is a, a word that means the victory or the power that comes from our faith. And that's what we're going to see as we go through this passage, is that it is our faith that not just enables it, because it's already there, but that opens it up, that allows us to experience it. So he goes on, he says, the person who wins out over the world's ways is simply the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, the divine Christ, he experiences a life-giving birth and a death-killing death. Not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial death. Now, if Nike is a unique word, pistis in the Greek, the word for faith, is an incredibly common word. This word is is the foundational aspect of our faith, our, of, our, yeah, of our faith. I mean, you can't get around it, right? We talk about Christianity. We have to talk about faith. We have to talk about this way that we engage, that we believe, that we confess, that we put our trust in, that we show our allegiance to. It's all wrapped up with this idea of faith. Simple, right? Yes? Simple? Maybe. Maybe simple to believe, Maybe simple in concept, but as we talked about it in the teaching team this week and as we wrangled with it in the notes, we, we started to see that it's easy in concept, simple in concept, but it's, it's difficult 
to execute. Or, or another way like this, knowing that faith is the way is simple. It's, it's clear throughout Scripture, have faith in Jesus. But actually having that faith, actually living from that faith, actually basing our lives and acting in a way that demonstrates that that faith is true or real, that's the work. I doubt any of us would confess that that's simple or that that's easy. And thus I think some of the encouragement that John gives us here is that he knows that, he recognizes that, he understands that, and he is encouraging us not to give up in pursuing it. He does. He goes on and he says, And all the while the Spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, bringing those occasions alive for us. A triple testimony. The Spirit, the baptism, the crucifixion, all three in perfect agreement. It's like he anticipates our, he anticipates our argument. If John were, were writing this to us and, and we were arguing with him or we were discussing it with it, we might say, we get it. We, we understand that Jesus is Messiah, but to live from that, to really believe it in a way that results in a changed life, to really believe it in a way that results in, in a change in our affections, in a change in our actions, how hard is that? And he would say, yes, it's hard, but look what you've been given. He's going to say, look what you've been given to encourage that faith. You've been given the crucifixion. You've been given the demonstration of Jesus as the Messiah. You've been given the promise and the, and the, the demonstration of the atonement for sins in Jesus being made the perfect sacrifice. In a way, he says, you are held strong by God's redeeming love. So yes, faith is hard, but know that you are held, that this thing that happened in the past has been done, and you are held. But it's not just that. Then we have the assurance of our baptism. We have the assurance of this thing that we did, that we, were, that we enacted in obedience to God, that we demonstrated a response to that being held by being baptized seen by God, accepted by the church, joined into, born into the church. It's a present knowing of our position with God. It's not just that he did something in the past. It's that it's demonstrated by something happening in us now. Our baptism is the experience, the personalized experience of that redemptive atoning power and we know through that baptism that we are heard by God that God sees us that God knows us that God hears us with that but don't stop yet so we have this past assurance and this present assurance but we also have a future assurance we have the Holy Spirit, which is guiding us into all truth. We have the Holy Spirit, which is affirming that we will not be lost, that we will never be forsaken. 
That Jesus is going to do what Jesus said he would do. That Jesus is going to come back. That Jesus is going to redeem all things. That Jesus is going to make all things new and all things beautiful. So we have this future assurance as well. Y'all, a triple testimony that we are held by God, heard by God, and headed towards God. We have the crucifixion the baptism, and the Spirit, all there to support us in our faith. We're not told to do something and then not given the resources to do it. God will not do that. God will not call us to live a life of obedience, a life of sacrificial love, a life in a community of people, and then abandon us to figure it out on our own. That is not the God we serve. That is not the God that is demonstrated in the Scripture. And that is not the God who is the experience of 2,000 years of the church. Let's go on. If we, take humanity, if we take human testimony at face value, how much more should we be reassured when God gives testimony as he does here, testifying concerning his Son? Whoever believes in the Son of God inwardly confirms God's testimony. Whoever refuses to believe in effect calls God a liar, refusing to believe in God's own testimony regarding his Son. This is the, test, this is the testimony in essence. God gave us eternal life. The life is in his Son. So whoever has the Son has life. Whoever rejects the Son rejects life. And then John just lays it out clearly. There's no hidden meaning in his message. He says, My purpose in writing is simply this, that you who believe in God's Son will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. The reality and not the illusion. Now, this is a very necessary assurance for someone like me. Because those of you who are, who are members of this family and have heard me speak enough know that I wrestle a lot with doubt. I ask a lot of questions. And we've spent whole Sundays on how doubt's okay. Doubt's not necessarily opposed to faith. That God encourages our question. That, God, that, that a necessary part of going deeper a necessary part of true learning is unlearning other things. And the only way we unlearn other things is through this process of doubting, asking questions, thinking critically, thinking analytically with that. But that's not all. And that's always held in tension here with this, that God's gift at the bedrock bottom of it all is that we would know the gift of eternal life. That we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt the real thing. That we would not be deceived by some false faith. That we would not be deceived by some false way of understanding. But that we would know this gift of eternal life in God. And he goes on to say, and how bold and free we then become in his presence, freely asking according to his will, sure that he's listening. 
And if we're confident that he's listening, we know that what we've asked for is as good as ours. Again, knowing that we are heard by God is essential in growing our faith. Really, think of the alternative. Think of the alternative. There's no way. There's no way our faith would be sustained. There's no way our faith would grow. If you really believe, if we really believe, if I really believe that my prayers are just nothing, they are not heard, it is just religious incantation, just smoke that dissolves. Yo, I got better things to do with my Sundays. Honestly, love y'all. But if we're just play acting, if we're just walking through the motions and nothing's really happening, come on. Come on, why do it? Anyway, he goes on and he gives this example. He says, for instance, if we see a Christian believer sinning, clearly I'm not talking about those who make a practice of sin in a way that is fatal leading to eternal death, we ask for God's help and he gladly gives it. Gives life to the sinner whose sin is not fatal. And there is, there is such a thing as fatal sin, and I'm not urging you to pray about that. Now, hold on to that thought, because if you're like me, you see a term like this, fatal sin, and you're like, whoa, 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 wait, what? Like, hold on. We, we just prayed in Swahili and English, right? Forgive us our sins? Like, and we were assuming that that was possible. But there's a sin here that's fatal? And we're not even supposed to pray for people? Who are, well, hold on. Well, just hold on. Hold on. We're, we'll get there. Everything we, do is wrong. Everything we do wrong is sin, but not all sin is fatal. We know that none of the God-begotten makes a practice of sin. Fatal sin. The God-begotten are also the God-protected. Held, again, held by God, right? The evil one can't lay a hand on them. We know that we are held firm by God. It's only the people of the world who continue in the grip of the evil one. Now, don't miss the principle here by getting hung up on the example. So the bedrock principle here is that we are held by God. That our sins are forgiven. That nothing's going to take that away. That the evil one doesn't have power to remove that assurance from us. But the example is worth examining in this idea of what, what does he mean by fatal sin? Now, we've encountered this in other places in Scripture. Jesus talked about the one unforgivable sin being the sin against the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And again, theologians have wrangled over this and come back. Um, I want to go back to my original illustration that I opened up with, the addict's dream. I believe that there, there can come a time in a person's life where they are so caught up in sin, they have made such a habitual practice of it, that it's not, it's not the sin itself, though, that condemns them. It's the rejection of the cure. That we can become so convinced that, hey, I believe that God is God for everybody else. I believe that atonement thing works for everybody else. I believe that God saves everybody else, but you just don't know me. You just don't know what I've done. You just don't know how bad I am. You just don't know that thing that I did, that I continually 
in a way, nurture because I don't believe God is sufficient to heal it. And so it just, it separates us from God. It keeps us from praying. It keeps us from knowing grace because we think that we've done this thing so horrible, so evil, so terrible, that it is even beyond God's grace. And we end up rejecting the very cure that is offered. I think that's one way we could understand it. But I don't think that's the biggest thing. You see, because I believe, as I've seen and I've lived and I've looked at my own life, that my biggest problem with my relationship with God is not my sin. Now, I got, listen, I got plenty to work on. Ask my wife, ask my kids. I got plenty to work on. I am not free from doing wrong, what he calls everything we do that's wrong is sin, right? You know what my bigger problem is? And the biggest problem that I see in our society, especially in a, in a Christianized society like the United States, it's not our sin. It's our self-righteousness. It's this idea that, you know what? I need God to kind of pimp my life. I need God to help me out when I get myself in a ditch. I need God to help me out maybe a little bit with loneliness, a little bit when I got a question. But after I get that help, hey, I'm good. I'm all right. Our self-righteousness, this idea that, you know what, really, I got it under control. I need a little help from God. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But in the main, on the whole, I'm okay. I kind of got this figured out. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get a good education. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to study up. You know, and I'm, and I'm not, and, and yeah, I know I sinned, but really, I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not running around on my wife. I pay my taxes. I salute the flag. I, like, we're good. And it's obvious that God likes us because God keeps blessing us. It's our self-righteousness. It's our allegiance and our faith in a counterfeit Christianity, a counterfeit way of living. Y'all, that I believe is fatal. Now, maybe not fatal in the sense that, you know, we use terms like you're going to hell, but I mean fatal in every other sense that it is death-dealing. That it prevents true faith from growing, that it prevents peace from being spread, that it prevents people from truly coming to repentance, knowing God, dealing with the issues that we deal with as a people. Just self-righteousness with that. And I, and I want to give you one other evidence of why I think that's true in just a moment. John goes on, he says, and we know the Son came so that we could recognize and understand the truth of God. What a gift! And it is a gift. What a gift. And that we are living in truth itself, in God's Son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is both true God and real life. And then listen to this tag. The very last thing he says is like, oh, and hold on, one more thing. Don't miss this. Dear children, be on your guard against all clever facsimiles. Now, other versions will say, Guard your heart against idols here. 
After all this, after all the words, after all the admonitions, after all the talk about love, after all the talk about faith, after all the talk about obeying his commandments and loving one another and doing away with sin and praying and being heard and held and headed towards God, the last thing he says, watch out. There's some really clever facsimiles out there. There's some really attractive idols There are some really deceptive ways that you can get off course. So be careful. It's one thing thing to look at Christianity and say, okay, what are the the clever facsimiles? Do Do we look at, you know, Mormons? Do we look at Islam? Do we look at, what do we, you know, what are the facsimiles out there? Okay, that's one way to look at it. It's another thing to look within the church. It's another thing to look within our Christian culture. It's another thing to look at those things that are literally labeled Christian and then have the discernment to go, I think that's a facsimile. I don't think that's the real thing. But I think we have a way. I think we have a way to understand that. If we go back into understanding, we go back to the to the, to the path that John lays for us, the, the course that John charts for us, by testing everything against the triple testimony, not just one, not just two, but the triple testimony. Does it line up with the crucifixion? Does it line up with our baptism? Does it line up with the Holy Spirit? Is it producing obedience? Is it producing love? Is it producing self-sacrifice? Is it producing peace and joy and all the things that are considered the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Like, are we immersing ourselves in this matrix of the church and the Word and the Spirit? Are we seeing things, not just one glimpse in time, but as they were, as they are, and as they will be? Are we lining ourselves up, centering ourselves in that place? I believe if we do that, and I believe we can do that, then that faith-enabled placement leads us into the truth where we can be assured we have avoided the idols and the false facsimiles. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I end with this. There's a, there was a French author, poetess, theologian, Simone Veal. And she said, there are, only two, there are only two powers at work in the universe. Gravity and grace. Gravity is, gravity is all that natural law. Gravity is what the world tells you you have to do. Gravity are the demands put on us by society. Gravity... Is the, is the biological imperatives that trick us into continual habitual sin. And she said, without grace, those powers are absolute. Without grace, those powers win. But praise be to God, there is another power. It is grace. And grace breaks us free of the gravitational pull of the sin and death. Grace breaks us free from the the dictates of the law. Grace 
changes our trajectory and instead of heading into fatality, launches us into life. That grace comes from faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. If you've not made that profession yet, if you've not, if you've not given your heart and made the profession, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, you are the Messiah who has atoned for my sin and given me life. You can know that grace in your life. You can know that change in your trajectory. You can know that this morning. And as the band plays and we gather around the communion table, and our communion table is open to all who are walking in that grace, who are seeking Jesus by faith, you're welcome to take that, pray that prayer, acknowledge that truth of who Jesus is, find someone here that you trust that you can pray with, and begin that changed life this morning. We'll also take up an offering during this time, this time to worship and reflect, and we're really glad you're here with us here this morning. Thank you.